Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. For those of you that have not been here through the summer for our series, um, the reason I'm using the mic and the reason we're out here is we're recording it. Um, Pastors been putting it on iTunes, and some of the ladies that have been here for parts one or three or not the others, um, they can also be purchased through uh, CDs, just like we can do the preaching, and uh, that way people, if they want to get the whole thing from beginning to end, because some of you that are here tonight, you're getting in on part three. This is our final night, so we're going to try to finish it up tonight. of course, as I stated in parts one and two, my main goal and objective is just to be informative. You know, it's not to bring judgment to anyone. We're not targeted at anyone. Um, just teaching from God's word, something that is usually fairly commonly asked of people um, when they come to the church or when they see us in public, a lot of questions we get. So this is just an opportunity um, to teach on this subject and then, you know, go from there, praying that the Lord will use it through not just this ladies' meeting, but through people that may hear it on the internet or people in the community, whatnot. So I want to read something to you. Um, usually after I've taught a lesson, I used, once in a while when I get a lesson together, I'll be like, honey, read my notes <laughs> before I go. Um, I haven't done that as much lately, but uh, I do now since we've recorded it. I've been like, you need to listen to this first before you put it out there. Make sure I didn't say anything wrong or, you know. So he's listened to both of mine and... Uh, He shared something with me he ran across, and this was so awesome I had to share. There's a lady online. She has a blog. Doesn't give her name. There's no picture, nothing like that. She keeps it anonymous, but it's called modestyblog.org. She is from Florida. She's in her 40s, and she has a couple children. She's not apostolic to my knowledge, um, but I have to read to you what she wrote about modesty. This is just absolutely mind-blowing to me. My search for modesty guidelines. Probably about 10 years ago, the Lord began to convict me about swimwear. Even though I was a follower of Jesus, I didn't know of any particular standards of dress for believers, so I used to wear a bikini to swim. I began to feel that was not right, so I switched to a one-piece suit. Then I began to feel uncomfortable because I realized that even though I was covered from my chest to my bottom, not very much in the first place, that it clung to my body and revealed my entire shape. So I went looking for a more modest suit. I found one with ruffles over the chest, and I felt that it didn't show the outline of my chest, so that was great. But then after a while, I started to think about the fact that my bottom was entirely revealed to everyone because the suit clung there. So I started swimming with shorts over that. Incidentally, no one in the church had ever spoken about swimwear. These convictions came to me from the Lord. Later, I added a tank top because the spaghetti straps on the suit left me too bare on the shoulders. Because I live in Florida, swimming is a big pastime here. I have three relatives with pools, so the issue comes up fairly often. I don't think the dilemma is probably so big in Minnesota. Right now, I have decided that swimming is just not that important to me because it's not acceptable to be immodest even for that. Have you ever realized that a bikini is just like ladies' undergarments? They're just made of a different color and fabric? A one-piece then would be equivalent to a lady's camisole and underwear. How many of us would answer the door and invite friends in, have dinner, talk, dressed in our camisole and underwear. We would not do it because we would feel undressed. But a swimsuit is the same amount of clothing 
meaning that it shows the same amount of your body and the definition of the parts of the body that are covered. We are just as undressed in a swimsuit as in a camisole and underwear, but we don't feel strange because society has conditioned us to believe that it's an appropriate way to dress in order to swim. Isn't it interesting that men wear knee-length shorts and then expect women to bear up to their bottoms? We women are like the emperor in the story, the emperor's new clothes, who, were, who was convinced by deceivers that the robe they made for him was very special, although to him it was invisible. So he believed them and went outside in his underwear. No one mentioned it for fear of embarrassing him. I believe that over time, Satan has used the worldly culture to gradually break down standards of modesty that have been in place by godly women for centuries. Little by little in the area of swimwear, women have taken off more and more clothing. The initiators of this trend were not seeking the holy lives that please God. They were fleshly people, and most of the believers have just followed along with the trend without realizing what they're doing. Somehow we've accepted the practice of undressing to swim, and yet somehow we feel inappropriate to undress at other times. Satan has deceived us into thinking that that's acceptable because it's acceptable in society. The point is that God does not intend for us to show our bodies to everyone. If we're married, our bodies belong to God and to our mates. If we're not married, our bodies belong to the Lord. Somehow it seems acceptable to undress for swimming when we would never undress for the public eye anywhere else. But the culture around us, and sometimes even the church itself, thinks that it's extreme to have these views. Later, I begin to be convicted about the fact that pants show the outline of the bottom of a woman, front and back. I thought maybe I'd start wearing long shirts or blouses that cover the bottom, but realized it looked sloppy. After hearing a tape explaining that God always intended for men and women to dress differently from each other, I begin to do further research. I am contentedly convinced that God's attire for me as a woman who professes faith in Jesus Christ is to wear modest dresses or skirts and blouses. Now, is that not amazing that she came to that on her own by being dealt with by the Lord? Wasn't taught in her church. That just, to me, was amazing. Totally amazing. I'm going to read one other quick thing. Is that okay? Because I think it's pretty interesting that she wrote. She says, so, much of what I've written about is how the media and public figures have set standards of fashion that the world and even the church have quickly adopted. If I were to ask the average woman if she had an area of her body she did not like, she probably would have a quick response for you. Let's say she told me her thighs are too heavy or her legs are too thin. To whom is she comparing herself? Well, she would say the average woman. Fashion magazines, TV, and movies have broadcast that certain body sizes and styles are fashionable and healthy. If you don't match up with these models, you're inferior. Now imagine a time, say 100 years ago, before the modern day media. Both women and men's bodies were covered. We, you remember we taught on that last time and I went through all the pictures of the type of clothing. Both women and men's bodies were covered and you did not know the specifics of another person's body until you married them. The woman would not be concerned with how her body measures up to others, and men would often admit that after seeing so many perfect ladies, it's hard not to have expectations in this physical area. But if the men also would imagine themselves back a century ago, they would also be more content with the woman God has given them. When they married, they didn't have other women's bodies to compare their wife's body to because they didn't see other women's bodies. So whatever the wife's particular physical attributes were, that would be fine. She said, when I first realized that God wanted me to wear only modest dresses, it was a hard step to take. That meant dresses in the house, dresses in the yard with the children, dresses for shopping. That is what women throughout the ages wore all the time, isn't it? I was used to wearing dresses on Sundays, but... Woo, me too. Goodness. 
Thank you, Lord. You okay? All right, she's fine. All of a sudden, I had to make big changes. Protect us, Lord. Just put your angels over us. So she said, I went to the thrift store and bought dresses for $5 or so each. Some of the dresses had long slits, so I sewed them up to avoid the flashing of the skin effect it gives when women walk. They were not all my style, but I had to make a transition. Now I am learning what dresses I like best and even trying to sew some of them. I am not in step with fashion, even though I'm striving to be relatively in style. What I mean is that when I go to a casual outdoor party, I wear a casual dress and casual shoes. While I'm not purposing to keep in step with style, I want to carry myself in a modest feminine way. It has meant more irony, more inconvenience in some ways, but Jesus said to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. Any inconvenience is minor compared to life and death situations that many servants of the Lord have to endure. I want to be faithful with the small things the Lord's telling me to obey. Dr. S.M. Davis said, Christians clothed with righteousness and humility will want to get their fashion designs from heaven instead of Hollywood. And again he states, Satan has a whole line of ladies' wear designed specifically to promote sensuality, promiscuity, and a host of other vile things. Many of us are looking to Hollywood or peers to be in step with style rather than God's standard of modesty. Now listen to this, amazing. From the ages of 16 to about 30, my hair was short. I had quite a few short styles, and they were in step with the fashions of the day. It was easy to take care of, and since my hair was fine, it always made my hair look fuller. When I became a believer at age 20, nothing changed in that area. And as I matured as a Christian, I read a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 about long hair being a covering for a woman in her glory, and long hair for men being shameful. When asking about this, those in the church dismissed this passage, explaining it was a standard at the time that the scriptures were written. It's not applicable to us today. My husband and I accepted that answer. After all, my mom and both my grandmothers had short hair. In fact, half the ladies in the church did too, especially the older ladies, because after all, it would look strange to see an older lady with long hair, wouldn't it? That's because we're just used to it. But remember, no one was ever used to women of any age with short hair or in any culture or time until 1920. So it goes on to talk about how, you know, in the 1920s, all that changed. She talks about all that. So she even says, as a woman in my 40s, it's not as fashionable to let my hair grow long. It's not as full as it used to be. Or maybe some of you have a lot of gray and you think long gray hair is not fashionable. Once again, we are confronted with a decision between fashion and faith, between short, stylish hair or long, out-of-step-with-society hair. The older we get, it may seem harder to follow the Lord in this area. But remember, a hundred years ago, all the ladies, young and old, had the long, glorious hair that God created for them. Pinned up or flowing down, it's a decision we must make, not based on the changes in our culture, but based on God's word. That, to me, was amazing. If you want to read more of her stuff, you can go to her website. It's www.modestyblog.org. She never even knew about it. She said her church never taught about it. They told her it wasn't necessary. But through the Lord dealing with her and her searching of God's word, she came up on it on her own. Modestyblog.org, O-R-G. And just for those that weren't here, I shared this. This is a picture of, uh, real quick, I'm going to show it, and then I'm going to move on to. This is a picture of what women wore back in the 1900s when they went swimming. Pretty amazing. In fact, there, I even come across, there was a photograph, where's my, there's a picture in 1910 of women at the beach. This is what they wore at the beach to swim in, so that was pretty amazing. All right, so 
I'm going to talk to you about holiness from the inside out, part three. And I want to give some credit here. Um, one of the books I used to draw information from for tonight is Reflecting the Glory by Ruth Reader. I shared the book I um, used in the past couple lessons, Power Before the Throne, and this is the sequel to it, Reflecting the Glory. And then I also got this book, which I ordered at conference. This is an awesome book, Modesty by T Steve Pixler. Oh, my goodness. This is chock full of amazing things. And I have a, quite a few quotes of his in my lesson tonight. So if you hear something, you're like, that don't quite sound like her. Well, it's probably because it came from him because he's got a lot of good things to say. Modesty by Steve Pixar can be ordered from the Pentecostal Publishing House. And if you're a responsible lady, I don't mind lending it out as long as I get it back. But let me keep it because I'm not, there's a few spots I didn't quite finish. So let me emphasize right from the beginning again that holiness must come from the inside. The inside has to be clean and the spirit right. Then the outside will reflect what's on the inside. I can't stress this enough, and I know that I mentioned it before. You can't produce righteousness just through laws of external dress. You know what I'm saying? In other words, just dressing modest doesn't mean your heart's right. We tend to think we can make people modest if we make them dress modest, but that's not true. Modest dress is sometimes the best disguise for an immodest spirit. Our outward appearance should reflect what's on the inside and not just a mask that covers up a wayward heart. That's why the Bible says God could see on the inside where man couldn't see. Because sometimes we could look at someone and we judge them by their appearance. We may think, oh, that's a holy lady of God. But God can see the heart. And sometimes you can't judge a book by its cover. And thankfully God can see the outside, but he also sees the inside. Modesty is not intended to set us apart in a superior way. It's separation, not superiority. Instead, it should inspire interest in beauty and glory. Modesty should be attractive. I couldn't tell you the number of times that someone in society or out in the world just out shopping or whatnot has commented on my hair when I've had it down and said, oh, I wish my hair was that long. Yours is just so pretty and all that. But what is so great is that modesty can be attained by anyone. Doesn't matter our height, our weight, our appearance, our social standing, our age, or our background. Modesty and holiness is acceptable to anyone. When we're holy and modest, it reveals a respect for who we are, and it also shows a respect for those that are around us, that see us. One point I would like to make is that too many times we as Christian women are judging our beauty by worldly standards. Hollywood has shoved down our throat what is required in order to be beautiful. They don't have a concept of natural beauty. It's all airbrushed, made up, scantily clad, impossibly skinny women that set the bar and portray the world's vision and idea of beauty. As a result, women are flocking to the doctors for facelifts, Botox, tummy tucks, breast implants, buttocks implants, skin laser treatment. You can't have a wrinkle. You can't have a stretch mark. You must be perfect. You must be beautiful. This is tragic. It shows a very deeply disturbed feminine mindset. Women feel they must keep their 18-year-old body, even if they've been married 10 years and birthed three children. Instead of growing old gracefully with our spouse, we're eternally seeking the fountain of youth. But most women have little understanding of where beauty really comes from. They think beauty is something they can put on. But true beauty comes from within, and that's not just a cliche. It's the beauty that flows from a peaceful spirit, and it manifests itself outwardly in our well-arranged hairstyles, our ornaments, clothing. The way we dress our body reveals our soul. 
we dress different ways to do different things, don't we? We might dress one way to mow the lawn. But it say we was going to meet the president. Sure wouldn't dress the way I do when I go to walk my five miles. You know, hair slicked back, tennis shoes, and a raggedy t-shirt. No, 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 no. If you was going to meet the president, you're going to make yourself as nicely presentable as possible. Well, how much more for the king of kings? But if we dress different ways for different activities, we should also keep in mind that we should dress one way in the bedroom and another way in public. Clothing can manifest glory. The other thing about modesty that's so awesome is that it celebrates women as women because it lets us be ourselves. We don't have to try to make ourselves up to be what the world pushes on us and says, this is how you should be. This is what is acceptable. It allows us just to be ourselves. For people to, what you see is what you get. This is me. This is me. Here's a few quotes I drew out of his book that I thought, just food for thought. The world dresses immodestly to gain acceptance. Immodesty perpetrates a fraud upon the public and upon the self by undressing just enough to arouse the senses, but not enough to fulfill the soul. Immodest clothing is public foreplay. Before intimacy, what do people do? They begin to undress. Sadly, in our society, there's usually not much left to take off. He said you could even say that immodesty is live public pornography. Wow. That's pretty straight. Immodesty is a publicly accepted form of sex trafficking, showing their bodies and selling their souls. Pretty strong, but so true. So many Christian women who dress holy and modestly have been told or made to feel that they're not beautiful. That is a lie from Satan which has permeated our world and our society. They say we must paint our face, show our cleavage, deck ourselves in jewels, and color and cut our hair so we'll be acceptable to society. What a burden. People think that we're in bondage and a burden from holiness and modesty, but on the contrary, what some women view as freedom is really bondage. You know, some can't leave the house without their face on. But let me tell you something, ladies. You are beautiful because of the Holy Ghost that dwells within you and shines through you. We were made in His image. Would you build a palace out of marble and then take a can of cheap paint and paint over the marble? Absolutely not. It doesn't need anything. The palace created out of marble doesn't need help. If we try to do that to ourselves, we're covering up the real beauty that God gave us. God wants us to be authentic and real. That's true beauty. We know the Bible tells us our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And that doesn't mean that we just let ourselves go. We take care to fix our hair, dress appropriately, see about our needs, see about our health, medical conditions, and whatnot. We have to do what we can to take care of. We live in a fallen world, and we just do what we can. But it is important that we take care of ourselves. In Psalms, chapter 96, verse 9, he said, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In other words, just by the way you present yourself and the way you dress, you are worshiping the Lord. In the New American Standard Bible, it worded it this way. Worship the Lord in holy attire. That's pretty awesome. We go on to understand that, as I've already stated, comparing ourselves to Hollywood standard of beauty is not the standard we should use. The Bible addresses this in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. 
when he said, they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We don't compare ourselves to the world to determine if we are beautiful because the world offers us a false advertisement of what beauty is. Sister Mason, I'm going to ask you to show that video and then we're going to shut down the media because I don't want to keep it up with the storm. I have a quick one-minute video I want to show you. This was produced by the Dove Foundation. This gives you an idea of what we see every day. Click at the very, you got to click on the top bar of it, the gray bar. There you go. Then you just go down to the bottom of that and click play. Yeah, I'm going to turn the light out here. You get it? Did you put your mouse over on the actual box that you drug over and go down to the bottom middle? Go down to the, drag your mouse all the way over on top of the box that's on the screen. see your mouse. Did you drag it over to this screen? There it is. I've seen it. There. Okay. Come down here to the middle. There you go. Yep. Right there. Click play. Channel 16 is the volume on the sound. You can go ahead and just shut that computer down. The video was posted on YouTube. It's through the Dove. Dove is, of course, a maker of beauty products and things, and they're just trying to promote a campaign for real beauty. In other words, let's not be fake. Listen to some of the comments. That just, there was about two or three comments I copied and pasted. lady said, I never thought about it before, but whenever a model gets Photoshopped, they must feel really sad about themselves because they see the ideal version of themselves. The beauty industry hurts everyone, in my opinion. Another lady said, I want this done to me. I want to see how the media can make me into who I'm not. I'd want to share it to the whole world how it is not me and how that it is not normal and how normal women look. People should really stop photoshopping women. They are beautiful enough. It's like saying that you're making fun of them by photoshopping this. I'm ashamed of people who do this. That's what the Hollywood tells of beauty is, but it's not even real. It's a false advertisement. 
So let's look at tonight just a few biblical concepts. I'm going to talk a little bit about makeup and cosmetics. We're going to look at some biblical things, and we're also going to look at historically. The first recorded use of makeup in Western culture comes from ancient Egypt. Thebes, it was an Egyptian city. It was filled with witchcraft. It was filled with prostitution. And it was renowned and known for its painted women. Of course, we know, even through biblical history, that Egypt many times was symbolic of the world, of sin. You know, the children of Israel brought out of Egypt, being separated from Egypt and such. But this is where it began. They used exotic eye makeup to intensify their sexual attraction and to aid in the art of seduction. Makeup was also used in idol worship to please the gods and to gain their attention. It was Egypt's influence on the Western world. Cosmetics remained synonymous for many, many years with being a harlot, adultery, vanity, deceit. In 1616, a man named Thomas Turk, he was a Puritan, and he warned, a painted face is a false face, a true falsehood, not a true face. And at that time, the Puritans, they forbid the use of face paint completely. And for the majority of the 19th century, face painting was prohibited among respectable people. To most Americans, what they called the painted woman was simply a prostitute who brazenly advertised her immoral profession through rouge and coal. So in other words, a woman that walked on the street with her face painted and had on makeup was automatically stereotyped that's a prostitute because no respectable woman would do that. That was in the 1900s. In the newspapers, even, they described women painted, diseased, drunken women bargaining themselves away. Painted Jezebels exhibited themselves in public carriages. So these women that had this profession were known as painted women. In the American colonies from the years 1700 to 1800, makeup was against the law, even. It was unlawful. By the 1880s, performers and actresses began to appear in cosmetic advertisements and testimonials. You know, everything you see nowadays, any type of product, they have to get a celebrity to be their spokesperson because if the celebrity, well, if they do it, man, then we should do it. So it kind of originated back in its time that these actresses and performers started, they started using them in these advertisements. And makeup slowly began to make its way from the stage and theater into everyday life. Now, before World War I, painted women were still very unusual and not readily accepted. In fact, listen to some of these statistics. Working women were sent home for appearing on the job with an artificial complexion. In other words, if a woman showed up to work and she had on makeup, she was sent home. The manager of Macy's fired a saleswoman in 1913 who was wearing rouge with the comment that he was not running a theatrical troupe, but a department store. In 1915, which is not so, less than 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, a Kansas legislator proposed to make it a misdemeanor for women under the age of 44 to wear cosmetics for the purpose of creating a false impression. Several years later, police women in Newark captured teenage girls at the train station, showed them their badges, and forced them to wash rouge and powder from off their faces. In fact, juvenile courts granted parental requests to bar their delinquent daughters from making up. In other words, they got permission from the court that it was basically commanded by the court that their daughter was not allowed to put on makeup. In these circumstances, in that era of time, 
Makeup and paint still implied sexual enticement and trickery, a false faith that had a very negative conception in society. Even during this time, the men of our society made statements such as these to the newspaper. Such decorating is the same as an invitation to flirtation. Or, every painted or flashily dressed woman is deemed by most men to be of questionable character. One man from Evansville, Indiana, sued for divorce, claiming that his wife spent $18 monthly on cosmetics and perfume. Wanted to divorce her because she bought makeup. Up until the 1950s, now, we always know that society goes first and then the church, right? Up until the 1950s, that it started becoming acceptable in society, but up until then, makeup was still considered sin by most churches of any denomination. Max Factor, which is a commonly known makeup seller, was the first one who began selling makeup to the public out of his studio. Soon others began to join him in the selling of cosmetics. And the almighty dollar won the day. Remember the scripture in 1 Timothy 6 and 10 that says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covered it after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When people saw they could make a lot of money from selling cosmetics to women, they begin to promote the message that it wasn't paint, it was glamorous. The promise of wealth caused many to discard their former convictions. So that scripture came true in this area of our society, where up until that time it was looked down that this is not acceptable. Women don't do this, only if you're a prostitute or a harlot. But when they decided that they had that love of money, they had that greed, it caused them to err from the faith. And that superseded their convictions. The promise of wealth caused them to discard those convictions. By the 1930s, fashion magazines and beauty columns were the norm. Constant advertisements slowly desensitized the public to this once frowned upon practice. They shifted the idea of personal identity from an interior self. In other words, it didn't so much now, your personality and who you were wasn't, they was trying to convince you, wasn't based upon who you were inside but how you looked on the outside, the painting and coloring of the face. They claimed that makeup was a true expression of feminine identity and not a false mask. Women were brainwashed into believing that beauty could be found in a bottle of makeup and made to believe that they could not be beautiful without it. That message is still being proclaimed today. Beauty experts tried to prove and proclaim its respectability. However, Alison Lurie in her book stated, Female makeup is conventionally thought of as a means of disguising age and imperfections. In fact, it only does this partially. Its main effect is to create the appearance of erotic arousal. Think about it. The wide eyes, the swollen reddened lips, and the flushing of the skin. Erotic arousal. Think about the words makeup or made up. Even those very words depict something that is false. How many times are oh, he made that up. She makes it up as she goes along. The association with those words is even one of falseness or untruth. Goes along, that's where the words ever arose. They're making up their face. They made up themselves. Genesis 1.27 states, We are created in the image of God, the most extraordinarily beautiful being that ever existed. If we're created in God's likeness, why would we want to alter that? We read in the Bible in contrast that Lucifer was created perfect in beauty. But after he sinned, he lost all that splendor and all that perfection. He became darkness. 
The Bible even tells us that one day we're going to look upon him and say, is this the man that made the earth to tremble? In other words, he's not going to be much to look upon. But Satan resorts to cunning, manipulation, and trickery to deceive us. He's the master makeup artist. Because the Bible even tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. In other words, he can appear something that's good when he's really not. The Bible tells us he appears as a serpent, a dragon, a roaring lion. He attempts to appear as something he's not. And he tries to hide who he really is behind a mask. Satan doesn't want the glory of God to shine in our life. He wants us to cover it up. Think about Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai after having spent time with God. His face shone so bright from his time spent with God, the glory of the Lord literally shone off of his face. And it was so bright that Aaron and the children of Israel asked him to wear a veil, mainly because as they beheld the glory of God on Moses, it reminded them of their own sin and the fact that they had doubted and turned away from God. And likewise, when the Holy Ghost comes in our heart, the glory of the Lord is going to shine forth from ourself. I, don't, I believe the Bible says something about our eyes being the window to the soul. It'll shine out of us what's in here. But the world, through Satan's scheme, wants us to paint over our face and cover up the glory. Cover up the glory of God and the image of God. We can also look in the Bible at the story of Esther that so many of us are familiar with. Each of the girls chosen would have one night, one opportunity to go before the king and win his favor. They were given free reign to choose their adornment from the king's treasury. So many of them chose to just make themselves up as much as possible. But Esther listened to the king's chamberlain and relied solely on her inner beauty. The Bible tells us that she only used the oils and perfumes to soften and moisturize her skin. In other words, she used lotion and oils on her skin, and she put on perfume to make herself smell good. In other words, she cleaned up herself. So she was presentable, and she smelled nice, and she took care of her skin. As we search through the scriptures, we can also see that makeup or paint was always associated with wicked women or prostitutes, even in the Bible, not just in history, but in the Bible. Jezebel was described as one who painted her face, the Bible says. When God spoke through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel about Israel backsliding and turning away from the one true God, how so many times we hear in the Old Testament how Israel, you know, they went, played the harlot, and they went away from God, and they turned their back on God, and they come back, and they, you know, because they kept mixing themselves with other people, and they would be drawn away to the idols and such. And in the word of God, they described this as things like, Israel saying, Thou rentest thy face with painting. In vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Paintest thine eyes. Deck thyself with ornaments. He was talking of Israel playing the harlot and turning away from her groom. And the things he used to describe all that was painting her face and making herself up. As a side note, just kind of a little tangent here, and I'll be coming back. We also know that in our society, tattoos and piercings are commonplace. But they reveal that same steady decline into what symbolically is slavery. Free people, people that are free, resist being branded like cattle. Slaves meekly submit. To be branded is to be owned. Gang members, prison inmates. These tattoos really serve no purpose. The majority of tattoos, the majority. And I can say this recently when my husband and I went to General Conference, we went to an art museum. It just so happened that in addition to some of the things they had on display of Rembrandt and different things, they had a special exhibit and they had these huge images on the wall, and they were displaying history in the art of tattooing. And most images 
that people get tattooed with. Skulls, naked women, guns, blades, gang names. And on top of that, they didn't just appear with just the tattoos. Normally they had many piercings. They might have a dog collar with that. They might have the big spiked mohawk. There were other things that went along with that image, you know, with that. And I'm not saying, I mean, we all know, and this goes without saying, but just for the sake of stating it, anything we do is forgivable. God can forgive us. If we've done that, tattoos something kind of permanent. You can change your clothes, you can grow out your hair. They can remove tattoos now, but it's a lengthy, expensive, and, you know, painful process. But even if we do those things, there's some scars in our life from our past that are permanent. And they're just there. But God still forgives us. And sometimes those things are good because they remind us of where we came from. So without that, I don't want anyone to think, oh, if they come in the church and have a tattoo, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Anything can be forgiven. That's just things that have happened in people's past. Our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's special. It's created by God. He is the ultimate artist who shaped us. He molded us. Just like the potter and the clay, the Bible talks about how he has us on the wheel and he's shaping us and he's molding us. He made us from the dust of the ground. He picked us up and in his hands he made us the way we were. Not just in the very beginning, though, when he made man. He made each of us individually in our mother's wombs. He knew us then, the Bible says. He said we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't need to try and improve on God's creation. We're beautiful just as we are. We should treat our bodies with respect, take care of ourselves through cleanliness and healthy living. Yes, we definitely need to do that. But there's no need to alter or cover up what the master artist has created. It's his creation. It belongs to him. Can you imagine walking into a museum where an artist had his most prized sculpture on display and walking over and beginning to paint it and break off this part and add something here? Are you crazy? What are you doing? That's not right. It doesn't belong to you. It's not your place. Well, the same thing with us. God is the artist that molded and shaped us, made us in his image, unlike any of anything else on this earth, the animals, the trees, the land. He made us in his image, and there's no need for us to get our hands in it. We're not going to make it any better. As I stated before, it's like trying to put cheap paint on marble. We can't do anything to make anything better than what he's done. What we can just do is seek to live and use our bodies the way he has told us to do in his word. We don't need any cosmetics to enhance our appearance. The only beautifying agent that a saint of God needs in their life is the Holy Ghost. Because the Bible says in Psalms 149.4, he will beautify the meek with salvation. When our lives are transformed by the power of God's spirit, glory is revealed in our faces. There's no need to cover that up. So now we're going to talk just real quickly um, about jewelry. And as we delve into the subject of jewelry, we can find as we go through the Bible, there may not be a specific scripture that explicitly addresses what jewelry is acceptable and what isn't, like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. That's straightforward, straight. Uh, we know exactly what that means. However, we can view several scriptures that talk about jewelry, talk about its meaning and its purpose. As I stated already, we know that Israel was a type or symbol of the church in the Old Testament in the same way that Egypt was a symbol of the world and a symbol of sin. In the Old Testament, again, as God was speaking through Hosea, once again about the unfaithfulness of Israel, he described Israel again as a harlot, a harlot who decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me. That's in Hosea 2.13 for your reference. 
When the women of Israel, the Bible says, they became proud and haughty. This is what God had to say about them in Isaiah 3. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk, and I'm paraphrasing some of this from the King James Version and the Message Bible. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, the Lord will take away the tinkling ornaments about their feet, their dangling earrings, anklets, bracelets, combs, mirrors, silk scarves, diamond brooches, pearl necklaces, etc. In other words, the women had become prideful and vain. Therefore, God was removing the items that contributed to that spirit. In contrast, we can see in the Bible a man by the name of Jacob. He was going back to Bethel to renew his relationship with God. But before he went, he disposed of all of the idols and earrings owned by his family. Genesis 35 and 2 says this, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean and change your garments. He goes on to say in verse 4, And they, speaking of his family, gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. Then we can look in Exodus. After the children of Israel built the golden calf, after Moses was gone for so long and they didn't think he was coming back, we can see God's response in Exodus 33. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man put on him his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from me, that I may know what to do unto thee. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. So then we asked ourselves, where did God's people, where did Israel get the jewelry in the first place? Well, in Exodus 11 and 2, tells us the children of Israel got it from the Egyptians per God's command when they were led out by Moses. God told them to spoil the Egyptians. Ask of your neighbor. Ask them for their gold. Ask them for their silver. And after everything happened and the death of the uh, firstborn among the Egyptians, they gladly gave them whatever just to get them out. But God's intent for that was to use it for his use, not for their personal ornamentation. Another time, Israel received gold from the Midianites. And this time, the Bible tells us they offered it to God. This is in Numbers 31, verse 50 and 51. We have therefore brought an oblation for the Lord. What every man hath gotten of jewels of gold, chains and bracelets, rings, earrings and tablets, to make an atonement for our souls before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold of them, even all the wrought jewels. So in this case, they did what God asked them. They collected all the jewels, but they didn't keep them and put them on themselves as personal ornamentation. They brought them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. And we know in future scriptures, when they begin to build the tabernacle and different things, they melted down gold and used it for the temple and the tabernacle. They used those jewels to make a beautiful, they took the mirrors of the ladies to make the laver that they washed in before they entered into the outer court. So these things were brought in to be used for the house of God. In Gideon's day, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites were distinguished from the Israelites, who were God's people, by the use of their jewelry and earrings. Judges 8.24 states, For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. In verse 26, it says, The golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides ornaments that was on the kings of Midian. So in other words, it's telling us these people could be identified once again by what they wore. You know, as I taught way back in lesson one, there was always an external sign among the Israelites that they were God's people because of circumcision. 
Well, there was also external things you could see in other people of who they were by what they wore. And they knew they were Ishmaelites because of their golden earrings. They knew they were Midianites because of the jewelry that they wore because the Israelites didn't partake of that or do that. For the sake of keeping ourselves pure, modest, and holy before the God and the world, we should flee the things that contribute to vanity or pride. And we should never be excessive. Philippians 4 and 5 says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. In other words, our goal shouldn't be to draw attention to ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says, speaking to the ladies of the church, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, let's take note that the key here to remember is balance. Balance. It's obvious from looking at this scripture that total prohibition of gold was not the point. Because if that was the case, then he also said that let it not be the putting on of apparel, which would be saying don't wear any gold, don't wear any clothes. Obviously we know that that is not of God to not wear any clothes. Hopefully you know that by now <laughs> after my teaching. We know God wants us to be clothed. But the concept in this verse is that our beauty and our glory should come from within. For when we have the light of Jesus shining through, outward adornment pales in comparison and isn't even really necessary. A good rule, and this is something that Bishop has always taught us, to look at it this way. Does what you wear have a purpose? Things that serve a purpose. Wedding bands lets the world know you're married. A watch lets you know the time. A tie stack keeps your tie in place. Glasses. Hair clips or a headband keeps your hair back. Things of that nature. The goal of a godly woman is to please God and reflect his image to the world. And there's nothing greater than a godly woman that exudes excitement and optimism and has a smile on her face. I mean, it's amazing how beautiful a woman can go when she, when she, how she, beautiful she can become when she puts on a smile. That's, for many women, their most beautiful attribute is when they smile. It just... Their face lights up, doesn't it, a lot of times? And, of course, we can't go without saying how Sister Rhonda's face just lights up when she is under the power of the Holy Ghost. It literally glows. We can literally see it. In the same way, we want to show that glowing, that shining of God's Spirit to the world. Proverbs 31, we've heard so many times spoken of, that it speaks of a virtuous woman whose price is far above rubies. How strength and honor are her clothing. Now, I thought this was so interesting when I was reading through this chapter again today. I read it through a couple times. Spiritually, her clothing is strength and honor. But it also states physically, she clothes herself in silks and purples. So the scripture speaks of the spiritual adorning of this woman and the physical adorning. She wasn't drab. She wasn't silks and purples. She made herself modest but beautiful. Beautiful. It's okay to wear nice things. It's okay to be beautiful. We don't have to be homely. We can look beautiful. It goes on to say in this same chapter that favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord shall be praised. God's spirit is vibrant and powerful. It lives in us and flows through us. Steve Pixler said, Holiness is not intended to stay bottled up like an aquarium where spectators view another world through the glass. Oh, no. 
Holiness flows out of us like a river and into the world to bring healing. Holiness must be a foretaste of things to come. Because think about it. Someday when the Lord returns and we're changed from mortal to immortal, the Bible says we're going to have a robe of white, a robe of righteousness. Our ultimate destiny someday is to be fully clothed in a robe of righteousness. So how we dress now should give the world a foretaste of what is to come. We must model holiness in our lives so that the world will long for what we have. Like a thirsty man longs for a cool drink of water. Because how many times have you just walked amongst people of the world that don't have what we have, and they see something in us and they're like, there's just something different about you. I don't know what it is. And we can look at them and say, I know what it is. It's God in my life. It's the Holy Ghost living inside. That's what makes the difference. And we need to model that to the world. Because if we're dressed holy on the outside, it's an automatic witness to this world. It's an automatic way to just show the world that we are different. We stand for truth. We stand for something. And it can open the door. So many times when I was a young person, when I was in high school, I went to a public high school, almost 400 people in my class. I was the only apostolic girl in the whole class. Of course, I was the only one who wore dresses, long hair, and all of that. So many times, that is what opened the door to begin to speak about the Lord. Why do you have long hair? Why do you wear dresses? Why don't you wear pants? Why don't you go to dances? Why don't you, know, why don't you do such and such? You know, that's the question. And you begin to tell them, because the Word of God teaches it to me. That's in the Bible. Well, there you go. Then it just opened the door, and you could begin telling them about the Lord. When I was in college, I was able to give Bible studies in my dorm room to young ladies that were used to be classmates at the high school, but because our class was so big. But then we went to college, and we were a little bit more of a core group, and I was able to witness to them. How we dress is an automatic witness to the world. And it's something to be proud of, not in the sense of prideful, but just to stand for what we have and know that it is pleasing to it is pleasing to the Lord and what he's asked us to do. And, oh, if we live for him and do what he's asked us to do, what an awesome day it's going to be someday to be with him in heaven. So live right, ladies. Live right. So we are done with holiness from the inside out. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.